Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Friend of Sinners. So please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, the title of the message today is Friend of Sinners. Friend of Sinners. If you made it today without a Bible, there should be Bibles under the seat in front of you, or you can pull the Word of God up on your mobile phone. So friend of sinners today, how many of you guys are glad that Jesus Christ is a friend of sinful people? I know I am. Otherwise, we'd be up a creek without a paddle. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. The baptisms were great, weren't they? Man, it's so exciting. Pray for us as we make that transition um, into our baptisms uh, during the services. Uh, We're going to start doing that. We're going to start off once a month. And then uh, we probably have to increase it to twice a month. But if you're here and you haven't been baptized, please say the word since. Since you made the choice to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, um, then you need to obey the Lord's command and be baptized. The Bible does not teach. Nowhere in the New Testament is infant baptism taught. It's just not there. People give their lives to Christ, and then they follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And so if you'd like to be baptized... Just go to our next step uh, area, let, let somebody know there, or you can um, sign up online under next steps. All right, if you found Mark chapter two, just let's just say amen, I know you're there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this day of celebration uh, where we could witness people uh, following you in believer's baptism. And Father, we know that that's a big deal uh, because your son commanded it. He said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we uh, rejoice with those who followed your command today to become lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for the second half of this service to be able to dig into your word. And Lord, I'm asking for your spirit to come and to do what only you can do, and that is to change hearts. Father, I pray that we would uh, be open to you today and what you want to do in our lives and in our hearts today. And so, Lord, may there not be any resistance. May there not be any defense. May we, Father, recognize that you are indeed a friend of sinners and that you come to seek and to save those who are lost. Thank you for your heart toward us. May we respond in kind, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, all right, well, last week, if you were with us, we saw Jesus And he was in the secret place. He was in that private place, that desolate place, and he was connecting with his father in prayer. And so that morning, he got up early and he went out. That morning later, Peter and the disciples, they got up and they looked over to where Jesus would have been sleeping on his bed and it was empty and they didn't know where the Lord was. And so they began to ask one another, no doubt, you know, have you seen Jesus? Where's Jesus? In the meantime, a crowd, because there's always crowds around Jesus, began to form outside, and they began to ask for the Lord. And so the disciples started looking for Jesus. And after a long search, they finally found him. He wasn't in Capernaum. He was outside of town, the Bible says, in a desolate place. And so they walked up on the Lord, and there he is out in the woods somewhere, and he's praying to his father. And what did they say to him by way of review? They said, Lord, everyone is looking for you. 
you know, it's time to get going. The schedule's calling. But aren't you glad that Jesus set an example for us that before the busy schedule starts, you need to connect with the Father in prayer? And so I think it's so interesting how the Lord responded to the disciples. Again, by way of review, look at what he said to them in verse 38 of chapter 1. He said, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee. If you remember Josephus, over three million people in the time of the Lord lived in Galilee. He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so after receiving direction from his father in the secret place, Jesus knew it was time to move on. And so they went throughout all Galilee. What did they do? They preached to the people. They delivered the demonized and they helped hurting people. Hurting people like the leper in verses 40 through 45. A man comes to Jesus and his flesh is literally rotting off his bones and, and he cries out to the Lord and Jesus touches him and speaks over him and his rotten flesh turned into baby smooth skin. That's what the Lord was doing. And we don't know how long this Galilean tour lasted. But when it was done, Jesus was ready to go home. And so that's where we're gonna pick it up today in chapter two, verse one. So if you have a Bible, please look at chapter two, verse one. It says, and when he returned to where? Capernaum. Remember that beautiful sea on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was where? At home. And so home for Jesus was Capernaum. Home for Jesus most likely was Peter's house right there near the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful place where they could go fishing, a beautiful place, a home where he could spend time with his disciples, and a place where Jesus would preach to the crowds. And we see that in verse two now. It says now, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Now I find it interesting that Jesus did not limit his preaching to once a week on Saturday in the synagogue. Jesus preached whenever, wherever he had the opportunity and right now we see that he's in Peter's house, a crowd has gathered, the house is full, outside is full, down the street is full, and what is Jesus doing? He's preaching in Peter's house. Now what did he preach? This is very important. What did he preach? Look at the end of verse two, in case you missed it. And he was preaching the what? The word to them. Everybody look at me. He was preaching the word to them. Jesus did not preach superficial messages based on man's felt needs. He preached substantial messages based on God's word. We've gotten away from that in America and the evangelical church today. And so if you're called to be a pastor, let me, let me remind you of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul the apostle writes his young protege, a young pastor of the church of Ephesus, Timothy, and here's what he says, 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word. Everybody say, preach the word. 
that's a command in scripture for pastors. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. You say, well, what is the word? If you keep that verse, 2 Timothy 4, 2 in its context, and you go back to 2 Timothy 3, 16, it's all in the flow. This is what it says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for uh, instruction and correction in righteousness. Okay, so Jesus set the example. He did not teach superficial messages based on man's felt needs, as if man's the center of his universe and a Christian is all about how highly blessed and favored I am and God bless me, bless me, bless me and meet all my needs because I think the kingdom is this, this planet right here and this life that I'm living now. That is not the gospel. The gospel is preaching the word of God and understanding that this is not the kingdom. The kingdom is coming and we're called to suffering and we're called to sacrifice and we're called to serving the, our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And that's the example Jesus taught us. An example you will not find, by the way, at least not most of the time, on Christian TV. Just do that in for free. But anyway, look at verse three. It says, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And so while Jesus was preaching the word inside of Peter's house, Remember, the house is full, outside the house is full, the front yard's full, down the street's full. You have these four men, and they're trying to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And we don't know if this guy was born paralyzed. We don't know if his paralysis was the result of an accident. All we know is that they, the friends, the four guys, were desperate to get their friend to Jesus. But there's a problem. The crowd is just too immense. And so I love their attitude. Their attitude is, man, we're going to get our friend to Jesus no matter what it takes. And so they start to press into the crowd. Can you imagine these four guys carrying this paralytic on a mat? And, and this crowd everywhere, they're like, you know, excuse us, we're trying to get him to Jesus. And the people are like, yeah, so are the rest of us. Get in line, right? Now, look at what these guys do in verse 4. And when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him? And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And so while Jesus was preaching, all of a sudden, there's some commotion up on the roof. Now, in those days, they built the roofs flat. Okay, so there's flat roofs. The reason they did that is because there wasn't any air condition back then, obviously. And so people would build their roofs flat and they'd go up there in the cool of the evening with their family and friends and they hang out on top of the house, enjoying the cool breeze, you know, saying hi to neighbors. That doesn't happen anymore in our culture. But, you know, some of these houses had stairs on the side of the house that led up to the roof. Other houses had ladders if you couldn't afford stairs. Okay, we don't know if this house, uh, uh, Peter's house had stairs on the side or a ladder, we don't know, but he, here's what we do know. These four men are trying to get their friend to Jesus. The crowd is hindering them, and so their attitude is, if we can't get through the front door, we're going in through the roof. And can you imagine being inside that house that day? Right in the middle of the Lord's small group, 
chunks of clay start to fall. And all of a sudden, you know, sunlight's coming in through the ceiling because there's a hole. And then there's four faces looking down. And they're like, you know, hello, sorry to interrupt. This will only take a minute. And they began to carefully lower with ropes their friend on a mat down, down, down into the room where Jesus was. By the way, faith works. And faith without works is dead. You can say you believe in Jesus all you want. But until somebody sees that you put feet to your faith, we wonder if you really have faith. And so these guys are full of faith. And they're lowering their friend down into the room. And I just got to wonder, I was thinking about this this week as I was studying. What was Peter thinking while this was happening? Now he probably looked up and said, hey, that's my roof, right? Or maybe he said, wow, these guys really believe Jesus is going to heal their friend. But they're still going to fix my roof, right? That's <laughs> Peter. And so in verse 5, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, son, your sins, your sins are forgiven. Now I wonder if initially when the four friends on the roof heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven to their paralyzed friend, I'm just wondering if at first, initially, if there was a little bit of disappointment. You know, maybe the attitude was, you know, Jesus, we're glad you forgave his sins, but we were really hoping you would heal our friend. And that leads you to your first point today, if you're taking notes, and that is that our greatest need is not physical healing, but what? You see, physical healing is temporal. Spiritual healing is eternal. Physical healing is just for this life, this little vapor that's you're here today, gone tomorrow. Spiritual healing is for this life and the life to come. Physical healing is great, but spiritual healing is even greater. So what did um, this man need? He needed a spiritual healing more than anything else. What do we need? We need spiritual healing more than anything else. Ladies and gentlemen, what do we need more than anything else? We need to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our number one greatest need. And that's why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And by the way, all of us were lost at one point or another. And so what did Jesus do? Or what does he do? He takes the hand of the Father and he takes our hand. And through his sacrifice and suffering and bloodshed, he reconciles us back to our creator that we ran from. Because why? Our sins had separated us from our God. If you're here today and your sins um, are still not forgiven, and you might say, well, I think my sins are forgiven. I'm a good person. I'll say it again. If you're here today and your sins are still not forgiven, there's nothing more important than for you to allow yourself to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus knew what this guy's real need, number one need was, and that's why the first thing that he said was, son, your sins are forgiven. And so once again, let me just say, if you're here today and you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, you know, there's there's nobody here that's gonna stand in judgment of you. Again, we were all there at one point in our lives. And so after the service, this altar is open. 
Every single service after the service is always open. All you have to do is come up and talk to us. We would love to help you know that you know that you've started a relationship, please say relationship, relationship. with Jesus. And so verse six now says this. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. And by the way, they're not talking at all. They're questioning in their hearts. Verse seven, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus, the man lower, 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 down into the room, there he is, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders that are there in that crowded Bible study that day, in their hearts, they're thinking, wait, what? What did he just say? Who does he think he is? And they begin to question in their hearts, saying, only God can forgive sins. And by the way, they were right. God alone can forgive our sins. But did that mean that Jesus was blaspheming here? It depends on who Jesus was and is. You see, if Jesus was just a man, then yes, he was blaspheming. But if he was God in the flesh, then he was just doing what God does. And that is in response to our faith, he forgives our sins. Okay, look at verse eight now. Jesus is gonna call them out for their thoughts. It says, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, the religious leaders, thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your what? In your hearts. Do you guys see what's going on here? Jesus could read their minds. Why do you question these things in your hearts? And probably they're thinking, how does he know what we're thinking, right? Did you know that the ability to read minds is a divine attribute? Only God can read minds. Can you read someone's mind? Do you know exactly what they're thinking right now? By the way, humans can't do it. Demons can't do it. Satan can't do it. In order to be able to read someone's mind, you have to be omniscient, which is an attribute of God. And so Jesus read their minds, therefore he just proved to these religious leaders that he was God. But now he's ready to give them an even greater proof of his deity. Look at verse nine. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now I'll let you guys answer that question. What's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up, take up your bed and walk to a paralyzed man? To say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that, right? But, look at verse 10, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Here's your next point. Jesus proved he was the Son of God by his stunning miracles. How do you know Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him? How do you know every single religion on the planet is false except for Christianity? 
How do you know that Jesus is the one only way to heaven? That he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah. How do you know that? Here's how, his stunning miracles. That's one of the proofs of his deity. Jesus, nobody's ever done this before outside of the power of God. Yes, we see miracles from the prophets in the Old Testament, and yes, we see miracles from the apostles in the New Testament, but they did them in the power of Yahweh God. And Jesus was Yahweh God in the flesh. And he spoke to this man's nervous system, and all of a sudden his spinal cord and his nerve cells and his muscles, all of a sudden they regained life. And this guy who was paralyzed and couldn't even move, he gets up, he takes up his bed, and he walks out the door. And everybody in the Bible study starts going nuts and praising God. Why? Because they knew, man, this is an act of God. And so one of the ways that we can be sure that Jesus is the Son of God is by looking at his miracles. Now, John the Baptist, we're going to find this out later as we study Mark. But when he was thrown in the dungeon, the Machairus Fortress, you remember he... Uh, got Herod angry, and we'll, we'll cover all that later on in Mark, but he ticked off Herod, and so John the Baptist was arrested, and he was put into prison. And so as John is in prison, chained to some wall somewhere, he began to have doubts about the Lord. His thinking, no doubt, was, man, I thought Jesus would have ushered in the kingdom by now. I thought he would have destroyed the Romans and brought Israel back to the place of our glory days of Solomon and King David. And yet, why am I in this prison? Things aren't going my way. Where are you, God? That's the attitude of John the Baptist. So he sent messengers to Jesus. Some of you guys really need to hear this right now. He sent messengers to Jesus to asked Jesus a very important question. And the important question was, are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? And I want you to see Jesus' response to John the Baptist. He said to these messengers, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. You ready for this? The blind see, John. The lame walk. The lepers are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. John, yes, I'm the Messiah. How do we know that, Lord? Because of my stunning miracles. Do you guys know of any other religious leader ever in the history of mankind that did what Jesus did? Yes or no, help me out. No. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so poor John is in this prison and things aren't going his way. And, and, and here's the thing, John knew better. John used to preach that Jesus was the Messiah. But here's what happened. When things started going bad in his life, he began to doubt what he used to preach. Here's a very important principle to you, for, uh, for you guys. And that is this. Don't doubt in the dark what you learned in the light. I know I'm speaking to somebody this morning. Don't doubt in the dark what you learned in the light. When things get tough in your life, remember what you learned in the light. What did I learn? That Jesus alone is the Son of God and he's sovereign over you in your life. How do you know? His miracles. How do you know? The miracle of the resurrection. 
He's Lord. He's Son of God. He's the only one, and he's sovereign. And he has the ability to do miracles. Now, here's the thing. Maybe he'll do a miracle in your life. But maybe he'll allow you to lose your head like John the Baptist lost his head. The question is, will you follow him no matter what? Will you follow him in the good times and in the bad times? Will you follow him when you understand him and when you don't understand him? Will you follow him when you're being blessed and highly favored and when it doesn't feel like you're being blessed and highly favored? Will you still follow the Lord? Jesus will say in Mark chapter eight, verse 34, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We have to deny ourselves. What does that mean? We come to a place in our lives where we say, not my will, God, but your will be done. We have to take up our cross. What does that mean? We have to realize that there's suffering involved in following Jesus Christ. Are you still gonna follow him? And we have to come to the place, not only that we deny ourselves and take up our cross, but we're gonna follow him. Not just say a little prayer and think we have fire insurance and live the same sinful lifestyle that we've always lived. No, it's a true conversion of turning from our own life, old life, and following Jesus for the rest of our lives as a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm calling on people to do. That's what I want our church to be all about. Ladies and gentlemen, let us not be duped by the so-called prosperity gospel. Not in this house. Jesus Christ calls people to suffering and to sacrifice and to service. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the kingdom is not now. The kingdom is coming. And when it comes, we will be blessed and highly favored. But in this life, it might not happen the way we want it to happen. Half of you are clapping. So that makes me a little nervous. Maybe I'll see half of you next week. I don't know. Look at verse 13. So they're freaking out. We've never seen anything like this. And so verse 13 says, he went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw who? Matthew. Yeah, Levi. Some of your translations say Matthew the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, what did he say? Follow me. Follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now, if you're brand new to the Bible, you need to know that at this time, Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, Galilee up north, the Decapolis, Perea, that whole region was under the iron fist of the Roman Empire. And the way that the Romans oppressed their subjects, one of the ways was through heavy taxes. Ladies and gentlemen, the Roman Empire taxed their subjects for anything and everything. There was income tax, import tax, there was property tax, there was business tax, there was toll road taxes, and on and on. I won't bore you, but there's so many taxes as I'm reading these commentaries, you know, taxes on fish that you buy. Um, uh, fish that you catch, and you know, um, how, how, how long has your boat been docked there? The Romans were always there taxing the Jews. Now, it's one thing for Americans to be taxed. We live in freedom. It's another thing for the Jews to be taxed. 
They were living under a foreign oppressor that stripped their rights and persecuted and hated them. It kind of be like if Nazi Germany won World War II and took over the world. And right now, America was under the iron fist of the Third Reich. And we walk outside today and there's swastikers all over Port St. Lucie. And we're having to give our money to Germany. How'd that make you feel? Trying to paint a picture of how the Jews were under the Roman Empire in the Gospels. And so what really made tax time really hard was that Rome hired Jews to run their tax offices. And so Jews were collecting taxes from Jews and then they would give that money to the Roman enemy. And this made the the Jews, the religious Jews, furious. And how did the religious Jews view or feel about these Jewish tax collectors? Well, Jewish tax collectors were considered traitors and swindlers, and they were shunned. First of all, they're considered traitors. As far as the Jews were concerned, you know, these fellow Jewish tax collectors, they had sold their soul to the devil. I'm sure when they walked up to the tax booth and looked at Matthew, their attitude, or maybe they even said it, is how in the world could you do this? How could you work for the enemy? Shame on you. Right? So they were considered traitors to their nation. Not only that, they were considered swindlers. Here's why. Uh, the Roman Empire, right, vast, and lots of different regions throughout the empire. And so the Romans, what would they do? They would, they would sell the tax-collecting business of a certain region to the highest bidder. And so if you're an irreligious, wealthy Jew and you've you got some money, like Zacchaeus, we'll see later in the, in the Bible, um, you can actually buy a tax franchise from the Roman government. And you can set up tax booths. And you can hire guys like Matthew to run your tax booth. And the Romans gave these Jewish tax collectors a certain quota that they had to meet and give that money to Rome. But any, anything extra, if you're with me, say amen here. Anything extra, they could pocket that money. So what did the Jewish tax collectors do? They raised the taxes. Everybody knew this. They raised the taxes, and so the whole thing was a racket. And they were considered swindlers. What was the result of this? this uh, what was the result of the Jewish community? How did they treat the Jewish tax collectors? Here's what they did. They excommunicated them from the synagogue. If you're a Jewish tax collector, there's no way you're coming to synagogue service on Saturday. And not only that, they publicly shunned them. So what you need to know is that Levi here in your Bible, Matthew, he was a despised man. He was hated. But did you guys notice how Jesus treated him? In verse 14, Jesus said this, follow me. And so if you're taking notes, please understand that the Jews saw Matthew for who he was, but Jesus, he saw him for who he would become. Do you see that? The Jews, all they could see was their hatred of Matthew. They saw him for who he was. But Jesus, no, no, no. When Jesus looked at Matthew, he saw a man that he loved. And he saw a man that he wanted to change. The Jews, all they could see was Matthew's past. But Jesus looked at his future. And he said, follow me. 
And I gotta believe that when Matthew heard the words, follow me, he looked over his shoulder, right? You talking to me? Yes, I'm talking to you. But Lord, you don't understand. I'm a despised man, I know that. People don't like me, I know that. I don't have the best reputation, I know that. They won't even let me go to synagogue, I know that. Matthew, I know everything about you, and I love you anyway, and I want you to follow me. Are you getting the idea now that Jesus was a friend of sinners? Do you see that? That's our Jesus. By the way, what does the name Matthew mean? When you look it up in the original language, it means the gift of God. So the Jews, when they looked at Matthew, they saw a traitor. They saw a swindler. But when Jesus looked at Matthew, he saw the gift of God. We sang about it. Melissa sang about it earlier. I love those words that he took us from dust to make us into glory. Do you see what Jesus does as a friend of sinners? He wants to change us like he changed Matthew. And so he said, follow me. And Matthew turned from his old life. And by the way, that's part of the gospel. You gotta let that old stuff go. He turned from his old life and he turned to Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans 2, 4 that it's the kindness. Please say kindness. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness Sometimes, you know, the Lord will use a hellfire and brimstone message to convict people and to turn them to Christ. But Romans 2, 4 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And Jesus was so kind to Matthew. And so what did that lead to? That led to Matthew's repentance, a leaving of the old and the following of Jesus, a whole new way of life. What happened to Matthew? He became one of the 12 apostles. What happened to Matthew? He wrote the first gospel inside of your New Testament. He was a changed man. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So you may be here this morning and you might say, well, pastor, I don't really think God wants me. I have a very dark past. Pastor, I don't, I don't really understand this all. I, 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 I don't know if, if God really wants to accept me uh, because people have shunned me. Religious people have shunned me because of what I've done in the past. Please listen very carefully to my words right now. If Jesus loved Matthew, he loves you. And if Jesus could use Matthew, he can use you. People look at your past, they're always bringing up your past, Jesus sees your future. People may shun you, but you need to know that Jesus thinks you're a gift from God. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Are you internalizing that? He's a friend of sinners. Make no mistake about it, he calls us to leave the old and embrace the new, but he is a friend of sinners. And so now in verse 15, Matthew's a changed man, and so he invites Jesus over to his house. And it says that as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, we know, by the way, this is not Peter's house, this is Matthew's house. We know that from Luke 5.29. And so as Jesus, in verse 15, reclined at table in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. 
and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so after Matthew decided to follow Jesus, he throws this big party at his house. And Jesus is the guest of honor. But not only that, Matthew invites, the Bible says, tax collectors and sinners. All right, so who were the tax collectors? The tax collectors were Matthew's buddies who worked the other shifts at the tax uh, collecting booth there uh, in Capernaum. And most likely also the, the wealthy, irreligious Jews that owned the whole tax franchise. They were there too at Matthew's party. Tax collectors and sinners. Okay, I looked the word sinners up to make sure I understood what does this mean for this culture and this time. And the word sinners there is referring to Jews who disregarded the law of Moses. And they disregarded the rules, all the rules of the rabbis. And so suffice it to say that Matthew invited a bunch of people who didn't have very good reputations. And what you got to understand is this. Jesus befriended these people. What does that mean? I've been saying it all morning. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Are you a friend of sinners? You say, Pastor, all my friends are Christians. Well, you're a friend of sinners. <laughs> right? Let's not become religious leaders and Pharisees and scribes and look down our noses on everybody else. And by the way, let me, this is not in my notes, so I'm gonna, I'll risk it and say it, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm disturbed and concerned. I believe in standing up for what's right, and I believe what's for standing up for truth, but you know what's happening in our nation? For those who are on the religious right, we're becoming Pharisees and scribes, and we're putting a big old wall between us and our stand for truth and the quote-unquote liberals, the sinners, and you know what we've done? We've shunned them, and we're not being their friends. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And by the way, he's a friend of sinners on the right, and he's a friend of sinners on the left. So don't let politics define you. Let Jesus Christ and his way define you and who you are. So you might say, all my friends are Christians. That's a problem. Matthew chapter five, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So what does Jesus wanna do? He wants to take your life like a salt shaker. And he wants during the week, Monday through Saturday, to just shake you on lost people. Love, joy, peace, patience. Everybody's freaking out. They're mad. They're critical. They're gossiping. They have life issues and they're falling apart. They're coping with beer and drugs. And there you are. You're not shunning them. You're befriending them. And you're giving them love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Jesus wants Monday through Saturday to shine his light through you at the office, to your neighbor, at Walmart, wherever you might be, with, with unsaved family. He wants you to give light and shine it into their hopelessness and their depression and their darkness. But if all your friends are Christians, how can you be the salt of the earth? Who are you making, who, who are you adding flavor to? Christians have already tasted and seen the Lord is good. If, if um, all your friends are believers, who are you shining your light on? 
Christians have already been illuminated by Jesus Christ. And so Matthew saw the light. And so what did he want to do? He wanted his friends to see the light. So what did he do? He threw a big party and he invited Jesus. And he said, here's my friend Jesus. Take it over, Lord. (laughs) And so everybody in this room is very smart, very intelligent people. And so I don't have to, I had a whole list of ways that we can engage and hang out with lost people and I just threw it away because my thought is you guys are smart and you know your life better than I do and you know your world and you know your culture and so here's what I wanna challenge you and I to do this year. Start hanging out with unbelievers. Figure out ways, go home and figure out ways how can I spend more time with people who don't know Jesus yet? All you have to do is think about who you were before you met Jesus Christ and how he changed your life and how you want him to change your friends' lives. And so you start to hang out with them, not so that they can influence you with their sin, but so that you can influence them with your Savior. And so maybe you invite them to your Calvary group. I thought all of our groups were Christian people. Who said that? Invite your neighbor. Well, he's an atheist. All the more reason you should invite your neighbor. He's an agnostic. Invite him. He's a liberal. Invite him. It's so quiet in here. (laughs) Be a friend to sinners. And there's lots of sinners who are conservatives. Invite them too. Jesus loves all. Please say all. All people. And he wants to be reconciled to them through his blood. And so look at verse 16 now. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, well, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here we have the religious leaders and they crashed Matthew's party. And they're criticizing the Lord. And they're blinded by envy and they're blinded by jealousy. They hate Jesus. And they're totally Uh, misinterpreting his motives. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear this. Jesus was not hanging out with sinners to endorse their sin. He was hanging out with sinners to win them to himself. And they didn't get it, why? Because they're all high-minded, looking down their noses, and they're all prideful, and they're all pompous. And so in verse 17, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, and by the way, the idea there is the self-righteous, and so I came not to call the self-righteous, but I came to call who? Sinners. Okay, now now, now put yourself in, in, in Matthew's sandals, and there you are at Matthew's party. Who's there? Jesus is there. The disciples are there. Tax collectors are there. Sinners are there, and religious leaders are there. Do you guys understand who were the sickest people at Matthew's party? The religious leaders. So why were they sick? It's your last point if you're taking notes. They were self-righteous. That's why they were sick. And self-righteous people do not recognize their sin and therefore they do not see their need for a savior. The world is filled with religious people. The world is filled with with self-righteous people who have this attitude. I'm better than others. Why? Because I don't steal. 
I don't do drugs. I pay my taxes. I go to church. I give to charity. I'm a good person. Because I'm so good, I know I'll go to heaven someday. I, 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 I. Well, you have a disease, brother. It's the, it's the disease of eye-itis. <laughs> you have an eye problem. What in the world's going on in your heart? Do you really believe you're better than other people? Hey, going, going to church and paying your taxes, that's all great and well and good. But listen, that's a result because Jesus touched your life and changed you. That's why you do those things. You don't do them to earn heaven. You do them as an evidence that you have heaven inside of your heart. And so you gotta come to a place that you recognize your sin and your need for a savior. Look at what these Christian leaders said about their own sinful lives. Peter said to Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. That's Peter. Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am chief. That's Paul. Augustine said, Lord, save me from that wicked man myself. And Wesley said, I have fallen short of the glory of God and my whole heart is utterly corrupt. Do you guys know why God used these men in such powerful ways in their generations? Because they were humble and they realized that without Jesus, I can do nothing and I'm a sinner and I need the Savior. And they called out to Jesus and he entered their lives and he said, follow me. And he, they stayed humble. They stayed realizing that they're just sinners and they depend on Jesus Christ and he changed the world through these men. And so here's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is we're all infected with sin. The good news, Jesus is the great physician and he loves us anyway. And listen to this, as the great physician, he always makes house calls. He always makes the right diagnosis. He always gives the right prescription. And best of all, he's already paid the bill. He said, I've paid it all. And so if you're here today and you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, don't get in your car and leave. After the closing prayer, come forward and get that assurance. He's a friend of sinners and he'll change your life. I'm gonna ask the prayer partners to come forward and any elders that may be in the house to come forward. And so here's how we're gonna close the service. First of all, if you're here today and you're visiting, just know you're our honored guest and on your way out today, please stop by the Next Steps area because we have a gift for you. It's a free book and it's a coffee mug and we just wanna bless you on your way out. We hope you come back next week. So that's if you're a visitor. If you're here today and you've got an issue in your life, you need prayer, maybe it's some type of healing that you need, physical, emotional, then we wanna be a church that's here. And so we have prayer partners and we have elders that are available after every service. We would love to pray with you, keep everything confidential. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man and woman avails much, so avail yourself of that. But most important of all, if you're here today and you don't, don't know if you've started a relationship with Jesus, come forward, talk to us. He's a friend of sinners. He will embrace you. He will not shun you. And so if we could all rise to our feet, Father, thank you 
Thank you for your word. Help us to always preach the word. And Father, thank you for your spirit who's with us today. I pray that those who need to respond will respond, Lord, and receive the love um, that they're looking for from you. Father, I um, wanna pray again for those who are being baptized this morning, God. Fill them with your spirit. Help them to keep in step, Lord, with you in life's journey. And we ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm new here, then knowing Christ.